The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So welcome to part two of this morning's presentation. My name is uh, Fred Porter. Um, I teach uh, old languages at Stanford, uh, mostly Sanskrit and ancient Greek and Latin and occasionally Pali. So that's how I came to be uh, invited uh, invited here. Um, so when I was uh, asked about this, I was I said, we've got all these people who are really into Pali texts, and they want to learn Pali. <laughs> can you teach us Pali? <laughs> so I said, sure, I can teach people Pali. And then they said, in one day. <laughs> and I said, that's a tall order. <laughs> Because normally when I teach Pali, it's like a whole year class, and you get like a whole book, Pali. And there's uh, several books on Pali grammar. Most of them are all red. I don't know, but here's a, here's a, a yellow one. Uh, it's, a, it's a new one. It's not very good. The red ones are better. Which one would you recommend? The red one. Yeah, the red one. Yeah. Uh, they're all a little bit different, uh, so yeah. I'm not sure I can... I can't always tell because I don't always have the picture, so... That's right, <laughs> and they all look the same anyway. But uh, Here's one by Warder, W-A-R-D-E-R. Warder is a tough slob for if you're just starting out. Yeah, they all are. <laughs> um, that's why I made up my concise four-page uh, handout of all Pali grammar in four pages. So I've just spent the last three days doing this. Because when I teach a class, you know, I have a whole 300-page book. But um, for this one-day thing, I had to just do it in four pages. <laughs> so it'll be c- condensed and quick. Um, one nice thing about this book, and it's not my favorite book, is that it comes with a CD. So you can hear people reading the exercises and uh, then some real sutta texts afterwards. And uh, um, right now for an hour or so, I'll present grammar. And then after lunch, we'll come back and we'll start reading Pali. (laughs) So first we have little short short, uh, uh, snippets for you. Uh, with vocabularies, and then we're go, going to go on to read an actual um, sutta. So the, the, the Metta Sutta, and, the, and on the CD that comes with this book, there's a nice uh, recording of this uh, spoken in uh, very clear Pali. And then also the uh, Mangala Sutta and uh, the Ratana Sutta. So I don't know if we'll get through all three of those this afternoon, but we'll, we'll do what we can. All right. So a little bit of basic introduction to the languages um, here. I'm sorry, I don't have a PowerPoint, um, but um, here's a little diagram of the family tree of the Indo-European languages. So these are a branch of languages that are all related to each other, stretching all the way from India in the east, and Pali is in part of that, Sanskrit is part of that, to uh, Indo-European, to Europe in the west, including English. 
So our language that we're all speaking is related to Sanskrit and Pali. So there's, there's a number of words. If you just look carefully enough, you can see are the same words. And other languages in this family are the, all the ones that come from Latin, so the Romance languages like French and Spanish and Italian. Uh, the Germanic languages, and English is a Germanic language, although it has lots of French come into it after the Norman conquest. Um, <clears throat> and it's basically a Germanic language, so like German and Norse. Um, what else do we have here? The Slavic branch, like Russian. And uh, Baltic. Uh, the Celtic branch, Irish and Welsh. Um, Albanian, Armenian, Greek, and that's very important to me, ancient Greek. It's not a whole, uh, lots of leafy branches. There's just one Greek thing, just like there's only one Armenian and one Albanian. Uh, but some like the Romance has all of these different uh, ones, uh, Italian and Portuguese and Spanish and Catalan and Provençal and, and so on. Um, and there's lots of Germanic languages, uh, Celtic languages. Um, the closest thing to Sanskrit is the Iranian branch. And I spend a lot of time studying old Iranian. Um, so modern Farsi, that's related to, um, uh, to ancient Iranian and Persian and uh, related to Sanskrit, very closely to Sanskrit. The religion of the ancient Iranians was Zoroastrianism. This ancient prophet Zoroaster lived in the first millennium BC. Um, founded this religion. And that poetry is very similar to the early Sanskrit poetry. So that's what I spend a lot of my time on. And then in Middle uh, Iranian languages, there was this, lang this religion that developed in the third century called Manichaeism. So this prophet Mani, who was originally from Syria, but it, it spread all over the place, especially along the Silk Road going into China. And it's a, a mixture of all these different rel religions very syncretic uh, religion. So there's lots of Buddhism into this religion and then lots of uh, 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 the other languages, that, uh, religions that are floating around. Uh, some branches they don't have anymore, Tocharian, also along the Silk Road, Manichaean texts, and Hittite, which used to be um, uh, modern-day Turkey. Uh, they wrote in cuneiform. Uh, but that's died out. Uh, the Turks into Turkey, modern-day Turkey, were very latecomers. Uh, so we're here to study Sanskrit and Pali, so that's one little branch. And I like this uh, picture of the languages because it's a tree and we speak of language trees. I'm, I also like it because if you turn it upside down, you get an upside-down tree which is a famous metaphor in some early Sanskrit texts like the Bhagavad Gita and uh, the Kata Upanishad 
about this metaphor of the upside-down tree, where the root of the tree is up there. That's, that's God. And then all of the branches and leaves down here, that's us. But we're all the same thing <laughs> connected to the up above. Uh, sure. And I can pass it around if you want to look at it. So it's just lunchtime. We can make some copies. Great. So we're here to do poly. Yeah, questions about languages. <laughs> kind of a question ahead of time, following through on what the earlier morning material. That, so that that tree is the Indo-European tree, and then oh, hmm, hello. Then we have the Chinese. We're, we're talking about the three canons: Tibetan, and then the Chinese, and then Tibetan and Chinese don't fall on that tree. No, yeah. they don't. So I wondered if, just before we get going, if you find any interesting disjunctions there when you're studying all of these things. Functions. So all of the languages on this tree are all related to each other. Uh, So the words uh, that they use are in some way all related. And even the poetries (coughs) of their cultures are all related to each other. This is something I work on. We actually have formulas in the different poetries like Sanskrit and Greek and Latin and Old English that are like the same formulas. So the poetries of these cultures are older even than the languages themselves. So the poetry was one continuous tradition. It goes very, very deep. Um, and the, the Sanskrit text is the, the, one of the oldest uh, text that we have of any of these languages. So they go back to like the second millennium uh, BC, the oldest text of so the Vedic uh, text. So we, Vedic Sanskrit, um, archaic Sanskrit, um, classical Sanskrit is the normal Sanskrit. The Vedic texts, um, the most famous is the Rig Veda, which is a collection of uh, hymns to the various gods. And uh, Pali is the middle Indic language. So it, it's out of the India tradition. Sanskrit, it's in its background. It's not a direct lineage from Sanskrit, but um, it's kind of a general lineage from Sanskrit. Okay. Anything else for languages? All right. So for the next hour or so, I'm going to try to teach you grammar, Pali grammar. Now, if you learn Sanskrit or Pali, there's lots of grammar to it. I don't know when uh, the last time any of you thought about grammar, (laughs) but uh, that's what we're going to do now. Um... There's a lot of grammar to these languages. It's a funny thing about languages. As they evolve over time, they seem to get simpler and simpler. Um, But they started out really complex. (laughs) Um, uh, Like for nouns, on the first page we have nouns. So some basic parts of speech, nouns are persons, places, and things, yeah. I got a general question. Is there any theory behind why grammar is getting simpler and simpler? 
Well, people get like lazy and they forget things and uh, um, so it's easily understandable why they get simpler over time. Why they started out so complex a long time ago is harder to explain. Um, I think that's all wrapped up in how languages evolved at the beginning. So it's like way prehistory. But it's a general pat- pattern that languages simplify over time because people just forget the complicated things and as children grow up learning the language, they forget the rules and it simplifies. So for example, uh, the whole case system, English used to have cases, but we've scrapped them all. We've gotten rid of them just to simplify the language. But we used to have, if you go back to Old English, there's like six different cases in Old English, but now we don't, we don't use them. So these are for nouns, and uh, how it's used in the sentence uh, is um, governed by, or the noun is uh, given by the ending. It's a particular form of the noun. It has like an ending on it, and uh, what the ending is says how it's used in the sentence. And these things up at the top left corner, these cases, these are the different ways Nouns can be used in a sentence. So nominative, accusative, instrumental, ablative, dative, genitive, locative, and vocative. Uh, What these mean is the nominative is the subject of the sentence. The accusative is the direct object of the sentence. Uh, The dative, to down, is the indirect object of the sentence. So... I throw the ball to my friend. The ball is the direct object. To my friend is the indirect object. I give a present to the child. So the present is the direct object. The to the person is the dative indirect object. Uh, Instrumental means instrument with. That can be either accompaniment or instrument. So I write with a pen, or I go to the store with my friend. So if you're saying such a sentence in Sanskrit or Pali, you put with a pen in the instrumental case. So here it's, the ending is ena. So the basic pattern here is you have the stem of the word, so dharma. Uh, in Sanskrit, this would be dharma, uh, but Pali uh, simplifies a lot of the uh, the phonology, so we, we get double uh, consonants. So instead of R-M, we get M-M. I'm sure you all know what Dharma is and Dharma. So you have the stem, D-A-M-M, and maybe with an A, and then the endings are the things that are put on right at the end of the word. So for the nominative, it's an O. For the accusative, it's an A-M. For the instrumental, it's E-N-A, E-N-A, or a long A, and uh, vowels in Pali, as in Sanskrit, are short or long. So the short vowels and long vowels. And the longs are written <coughs> with a, a, a horizontal line over it, called a macron. 
Um, Pali is nice because um, we generally read it just in the Romanized script. So it's the English alphabet that we all use with a few diacritics. So there's some consonants with dots under it or vowels with lines over it, but a few little diacritic marks. But basically the alphabet is so in any book of a Pali text that you pick up, none of these books, all these grammars, they don't do whatever script, strange script. So the Sinhalese script is very curvy and loopy and rather difficult to read. And the Sanskrit script isn't that bad, but it's still not as easy as reading this. So when you read Pali, you just read this stuff. It's nice and easy. So you don't have any problems reading that. So ablative is uh, from, uh, dative is to, indirect uh, object. Genitive is of, possession, the book of me, the person's book. Locative is the location, the place in which. And vocative is an address to somebody. O, you. Learn Pali. The subject of a sentence. Direct object, yeah. Uh, the dative case, indirect object. So two or four. Why do some of the cases have alternate endings? That's the way with Pali. There's lots of alternate endings in Pali. That's why if you look at all the categories of nouns and verbs and everything else, there's not just one ending. There's two endings, three endings, four endings. And that goes to... Uh, the Obama was saying, kind of get used to that. Yeah. What, was there any reason why they did it that way? Well, this has to do with the fact that it's a lingua franca, as he explained this morning. So it's an amalgamation of many different dialects from many different places. So sometimes they use the form from this place, and another times they'll use a form from this place, and it all gets put together, and then our texts have all of them jumbled together. Let's see. There's singular and plural. Singular and plural. And that's how all of these go. Singular and plural and the verbs too. If this was Sanskrit, <coughs> I was teaching you, there'd be three columns. Singular, dual, and plural. Sanskrit had a whole set of endings when you're just talking about two things. But Polly scrapped that. That's too much work. <laughs> so they got rid of that. So we just have singulars and plurals, but then we all have all these different eight cases. Yeah? So in English, to distinguish the cases, you're sort of using prepositions. Yeah, we use prepositions for so it. To, from, of. Be an extra word no, there's very few prepositions. But now, we have a few remnants of this case system left in English. Can anybody think of what they are? Whom, yeah, we have who and whom, and uh, one more form. Yeah, he and him, and the possessive for who? Whose. Yeah, so whose, and then his for he, him, his. So the him, the M's are the accusative. Damam ends in an M, just like whom and him ending in an M. 
And then the uh, genitive is the S. So damasa, so whose, there's an S in there, whose, his, so another genitive. So English used to have all nouns in six different cases, but that we got rid of. But they still had it in Pali. Now there's different noun classes. So here's the most common one, these masculine A stems, and nouns have genders, masculine, feminine, neuter. However, in um, the order, traditional order, of uh, Sanskrit and Pali. They don't say masculine, feminine, neuter. They go masculine, neuter, and feminine. It has to do with their value system. Women are on the bottom. So if you look at like, some other pages for like pronouns, it goes masculine, neuter, feminine. So uh, masculine nouns, feminine nouns, those are the two most common classes up at the top. The masculine short A stems, also neuter short A stems, are very similar to those. And the feminine long A stems. And then there are stems in other vowels, U stems and I stems. And then there are stems in consonants, N stems and R stems and IN stems and S stems. And there's a whole bunch more stems too, but I couldn't fit them all on one page. (laughs) So if I had another page, I could give you a whole nother page of different noun classes. Yes? So, um, for people who really become fluent or scholars, this, I mean, is it a matter of literally for every noun having just memorized <coughs> which, it, it's, it's, which, which stem, is it a you know, um, masculine, feminine, neuter, and which stem, or is there some some cl- is it something inherent in it that tells you so it's not just raw memorization? Uh, it, it depends on what the noun is. So if it's a feminine with a long A, if you see that long A there, then that'll clue you that it's a feminine because the feminines have the long A's. Um, but others, it's hard to tell which class it is. So you just kind of have to know it. And then you have to know all of these endings so that when you see one in a sentence, you know immediately, ah, this is a dative of this noun class. So then that'll tell you how to translate it. So once you know where it is on the chart and what case it is, that tells you how to translate it. So how do you figure out what the, what the actual root is? Uh, so you, you, the endings are pretty similar. So they all have this same things. So you throw off the ending of the word and then that gets you down to the root or the stem. Right, but like the, the feminine has the long A mm-hmm. in the root, right? But it also, there's a long A in the, in the instrumental yeah. of the masculine mm-hmm. A. So yeah, so it, um, it kind of blurs in the, the <laughs> what, what you count as the root and what you count as the stem and what you count as the ending. Are the roots pretty short? So these are the stems of nouns. So it's just like the basic noun word. So like dhamma. What's dhamma mean? Nature of reality. It means lots of things. <laughs> things? <laughs> 
the root of it is uh, from lots of the nouns or sort of verbs are like the more basic units. And the root of this noun is, comes from a verb duri that means to hold. So this is what upholds things. So it's like what upholds the universe. <laughs> um, there's a nice uh, Latin cognate of this word. DHs in Latin come out as Fs. So the Latin cognate of this word is firm, F-I-R-M. So you have the R and the M, like Dharma. So the Sanskrit preserves like the older form, Dharma, A-R-M-A. But the firm is the same word. So it's something solid. Um, I didn't have space to put the um, the meanings of these words. So bhikkhu is a monk, uh, raja is the king. Uh, so Latin rakes. Uh, what are some words in English that have R-E-G as royal things? Regal, reign, regnum. Oh, there's lots of words. Good. And manas is mind down at the bottom. It's a neuter S stem. So the S has disappeared in a lot of places, but the root of this word would have ended in an S. Manas is Sanskrit. And that's the mind word. M-E-N is the root. So mental, mind, also the word for man. M-A-N. So men, humanity, we're thinking people. So that's the mind. The man in woman is, a, is completely different. The man in the word woman has nothing to do with the man of man. And the woman word, there the man is, uh, in Sanskrit this would be munt suffix, meaning having. And here we have and suffixes on here somewhere? Maybe not. But uh, the woman means having a womb. The wo, W-O, is the womb word. So have, women are the ones having a womb. And the man has nothing to do with them. Good. Questions about noun paradigms? So at lunch you can start memorizing all these paradigms. <laughs> Uh, on the next page, uh, Sanskrit likes to connect nouns. So it takes two nouns and it glues them together to make a compound. And I gave you the Sanskrit names of these compounds, the most important ones. A Dvandva compound. Dva, it, it means two, so it means two things together. So you glue two things together. And uh, that would be translated like A and B. So if you just have A and B glued together, then it would be, you translate that A and B. So in English, like bitter, sweet, bitter and sweet. In English, we don't use compounds nearly so much as Sanskrit. They loved compounds. Um, the Tatpurusha compounds is there's some case relationship to it. So like a book case, a case for books, a dog house, a house for dogs. Um, Karmadarya 
and you don't have to worry about what these names mean. Um, Karmadarya is uh, where the first element's sort of the same thing as the second element, a black board. The board is black. And lastly, the most important one is the Bahurihi compound, and that means much rice, and that's a possessive compound. You say having the two things, and usually the first element will be like an adjective, and the second will be a noun. So like having much rice, the person who has much rice, or Blackfoot, and this is a tribe of uh, Indians. If you say a Blackfoot person, he's a Blackfoot He's a Blackfoot. You're not really talking about your feet, the person's feet. It's their whole being. They are part of the Blackfoot tribe. Uh, a nice one of these from uh, ancient Greece is uh, these epithets in Homer, a great epic poet of the ancient Greek, Greeks who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. He has all of these epithets, these poetic formulas, and uh, often they involve these kind of compounds. So white-armed Hera, swift-footed Achilles. So it's Achilles who is swift of foot. He has swift feet. Hera has white arms. And let's see, what else do we have here? Prepositions. Because they have all the cases of the nouns, you don't need a lot of prepositions. And they actually probably has very few and so here's uh, five of them, and there's not a lot of them that are used. And so anu, to follow, that takes the accusative case. Apa, away from, takes the ablative case. So that's the away from case. So that's what the A plus A and plus AB means. Uh, sometimes they have nouns that are used as prepositions. There's just uh, some of those. Um, I, I sort of stopped. I got tired of typing them out, but I could have filled a whole page of those. Um, <clears throat> sometimes prefixes are put in front of verbs, and that's the next thing, prefixes. Yeah? How do we, when we look at the compounds when we're reading, how do we know which one is which when we're reading? Um, <clears throat> you just have to sort it out from the context of what is being said. Now, when they glue nouns together, uh, the first one, you can tell it's a compound because there'll be no ending on it. So if you look at the noun page, you have all these endings. But when you make a compound, and sometimes they can glue like three or four words together to make a compound, not just two, they don't have the endings. Only the last element will have an ending on it to say what case it is. The others will just have the stem form and then glued on to the next one. Right. And then you just sort of read the context and try to figure it yeah. out. And so if you come to uh, a noun in, in Sanskrit and Pali, words are often like piled up all together and you have to sort out where words stop and words begin. And if there's no ending to the word, then it probably goes into a compound. And then... When you get an ending, okay, then that's the end of the word. Uh, prefixes are things put on the front of verbs, especially, sometimes of nouns, too. And here's some really common ones. Uh, <clears throat> so, anu, following afterwards, apa, away from, so these were the same as the prepositions. 
uh, Ava down, uh, so like Avalokiteshvara, the one looking down. Uh, Ud is up, Upa towards, Ni is down, not to be confused with Ni with a long I, that means away or out. There's a nice etymology for the word uh, nest in English. Uh, the knee in nest uh, means down. So German has this Niedergang going down. We don't have it a lot in English. <coughs> and then the ST of nest is the sit word. Sit. So that's the ST. So a nest is where the bird sits. Sits down. So conjunctions are little particles that blew parts of the sentence together, like and and or and then, if. Uh, particles are little words, and none of these words have endings on them. They're just little words themselves. So eva, exactly, evam, so. You know, so there's a difference between the one without the M and the one with the M. He, indeed, eva, like. Va like, na, not. And that's the same as English. <coughs> and gotta be where the va is like eva, like, but va with a long a is or. So that makes a difference whether it's a long vowel or a short vowel. And then I would have typed more adverbs. So adverbs uh, modify verbs. So like here, place ones or time ones. Adjectives modify nouns. I didn't get to do those. On the next page, we have pronouns. Pronouns take the place of nouns. And so on the top sheet, we have uh, the word for he, she, and it. Or in the Sanskrit order, he, it, and she. So it goes masculine, neuter, feminine. And the S stands for singular. So the singular ones on this side, the plurals on this side, masculine, uh, neuter, feminine, for both. And notice that it starts out with an S, but then everything else is with T's, except in the nominative, so the Feminine still has an S, but everything else has T's, and then they have their endings on it. Uh, another common pronoun uh, that's a very confusing one is I am this or these, being singular or plural. And notice this pronoun has all these different stems. So it's really like three or four pronouns that all get glued together. And uh, so sometimes it starts out a Y. Others, it starts, a lot of them start out with a I M. Some start out with a S. Some start out with I D, like the neuter. And then I M. So lots of different forms. Uh, also, to some extent, with the next one, Asu, that or those. Uh, so the neuters have the A D instead of A M, but then some also have AS, so all these different forms. 
interrogative pronouns, that means questions, so masculine, feminine, uh, masculine, neuter, and feminine is ko, kim, ka, relative pronouns, these are both translated as who, but the interrogative has the question mark, the relative pronoun launches into a relative clause, I see the man who is learning Pali. If you stick a little chi on the end of the ko one, that uh, makes it indefinite, generalizes it. Someone is learning Pali. And then here are some other pronomial adjectives. Ana, another. Atara, another. Anatama, another. And so on. Eka, one. Itara, other. So there's a list of them. Saba is sarva, Sanskrit sarva, that means all. The same as Greek holos. And then down at the bottom, personal pronouns. I, we, you, and you, plural, in all the different cases. So this is really boring, isn't it? But you have to know these forms <laughs> if you're going to read Pali. <laughs> because, uh, you know, you see a sentence, you've got to be able to sort out, you know, what is this word doing here? Questions? Has anyone written a uh, Dick and Jane kind of text <laughs> in Pali as a good way for us to ease into it? I don't know. Do you know of any such book? I don't know how any such like now. The simplest thing uh, that I know of is a little book from Sweden called Pali Buddhist Texts, and we'll be reading this this afternoon. It has lots of um, uh, short texts with vocabularies. And then in the back of this book, there is a short grammar section. Uh, what do they call it? Summary of grammar. So it's a very short section, but even this is 20 pages. So, so I got it in four pages here. <laughs> but uh, this is the shortest uh, um, account of polygrammar that I know of. So I assume because people are starting out translate, uh, translating that they're really not sitting out and memorizing all of this that are translated, you're working back and forth and looking up and it, that's how over time it kind of sticks in your mind, right? Yeah. Practically speaking, how you really get it. Right? Yeah. And of course, the main thing is uh, vocabulary. Um, so you need the grammar to tell you how the words uh, function in the sentence. You know, what's the subject? What's the object? What's going on? But you need to know the vocabulary just to figure out what the words mean. So the first thing is vocabulary. Um, so, so we chant in Pali sometimes, you know, like the, you know, with the monastic tradition, and, and so then there's kind of Pali chant, and then your English translation, translation. Yes. So that's a great way to, it is. you know, mm-hmm. to start making the connection. <laughs> so here's the basic um, Pali dictionary. Uh, it's not too heavy. Uh, it's got a lot of words in it. So uh, 
if you want to read Pali, so this is the thing to get to look things up because you know what the words mean. Uh, I doubt it. Is it? Pali Tech Society's book. Uh huh. Yeah. You can order online yeah, you can always order them. Or there is a website of Pali Society, you can order directly. Mm-hmm. Fred, because this language is so um, or or that the, the there's so many grammatical um, concepts um, and, and it's complex. Has anyone actually written like a program that would analyze a given set of words to break it out to tell you, oh, this is this particular type of as I was hunting around for things on the internet this uh, this past week, as I was thinking like what to do, I, I found something listed the the Poly Reader or something. It's a, a Linux downloadable thing, and I don't think I had Linux on my computer, so I, I downloaded, but I didn't. It didn't work. Does anyone know this? Does it work? Because I think what you're, all you're supposed to do is just like put your cursor over a word and then it has the di- all the whole dictionaries in it and then it would just come up and tell you what the word is. I think I've seen that somewhere else for Windows. I can't, of course, don't know where it is right now, but I think I have run across it somewhere. Yeah. yeah so, just sure. the grammatical rules you know, are fairly strict. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. It seems like there would be a way to take a word, you know, like you have the dictionary, but that doesn't put it into the grammatical context. That's right. And so by using, applying the grammatical rules, one might be able to Uh decode it because the rules are so strict. I mean, it's not like we've gone into the simplified modern language where we have no no rules. The trouble with that is that there's all of these uh, forms that are exactly the same that mean different things. <laughs> so if you look at, uh, here's just jati, so jatiya, so that's the form for the instrumental, the ablative, the dative, uh, the genitive, and the locative. The same, <laughs> the same spelling means all those different things. So when you see jatiya as you're reading along, uh, you can say, oh, it must be one of these six things, five things, four things. And then, then you have to use like the context to say, okay, which makes better sense and how to put the sentence together. Um, but new computers, computers are um, making great strides in reading old languages. Um, I know for ancient Greek and I think also for Latin, there are programs that they have all the dictionaries in the program and that you just put your cursor over the word of any text. They have um, all the text digitized, as you can find for Pali easily on the Internet. You know, they have the whole um, the whole canon, the whole Pali canon just on the web. So you just click it and whatever text you want, there it is in Pali. And then... Um, Probably you just put your cursor over and it'll tell you what the word is. I know uh, they have this for ancient Greek. 
Um, and the reason Greek was one of the first languages to do this had to do with somebody named uh, David Packard, who's uh, like a local name around here. But it wasn't the Packard as the computer Packard. It was his son, uh, who was a classical scholar, as a PhD from Harvard in ancient Greek and classics. Uh, I think he works that now, but he does own the theater and uh, Palo Alto on the University Avenue. He's the one who runs that theater. But um, because his father uh, it was this computer thing, they uh, digitized all of Greek literature. So it's all on one CD. You can have all of Greek literature. Just like on one CD, you can have all of the polycanon. <laughs> Um, another thing you can find on the um, uh, internet is uh, a word list of Pali, and here's one I just downloaded. I don't even know that like a, there's a name associated with this. Who did it? I'm not sure, but it's a pretty big word list, and uh, it's kind of nice because it just gives a very short definition of the word. Whereas if you look in this book. Uh, the entries are very long. So if you want to find just what the word means, you often have to sort through you know, a whole big paragraph. But on this word list, it's just one very short thing. So. Where is that available? Yeah, it's... Is that available? Yeah, it's really... I just saw it this... Uh, it's one of the main sites that say Buddhist texts and then there'll be a big file of Pali dictionary or something and it probably is this thing. So it's a, it's a really big book. So I made it into double columns and it's in a small font is 200 pages. So if it's single column, that's 400 pages. And if it's a bigger font, it's you know, 500 or more pages. So it's a lot of words. And, uh, there, are so there is a website of PTS Pali Dictionary, and uh, it, it shows only simple definitions. So it's also yeah, and they have this dictionary on the uh, computer, so you can use this dictionary without buying it. You can just use it online. And is the the new dictionary there also? The one that your teacher it's did, Cone. No. <laughs> so you're saying it's the old version of the Polytech Society Dictionary is the one that's online. Not the, not, I think they've done half of it, the new version, mm-hmm. something like that. That's not online, that's what you're saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Other questions? So we've done nouns and we've done pronouns and we've done some uh, little words, prepositions and particles. The last page is the hardest of all. It's verbs. Everyone know what a verb is? So a noun is a person, place, or thing. What's a verb? Action words. Yeah. 
So here is, I've taken the model verb, is lubati. That means to grab, grab hold of. I think this is the same as the English word rob. Uls and ars frequently get confused. So in Germanic, this came out with an r, rob, rob, to rob or steal something to rob. So this is that word. So it means to take. And we have different tenses in um, the verbs. And then here these numbers are uh, the person. So first person, second person, third person, uh, singular, and then first person plural, second person plural, third person plural. So what this corresponds to in English is I go, you go, he goes. So I go is first person, you go is second person, he or she goes is third person. And those can be singular or plural, we go, you all go, they go. Notice how simple English is. <laughs> I go, you go, he goes, so that's one that's different. He goes, the third singular is different. We go, you go, they go. So for English, out of the six forms, five of them are exactly the same. There's only one that's a little bit different. Yeah, it does. That's why it's hard to learn English, right? <laughs> yeah. It's a trade-off. You know, you get more forms or less forms. Uh, it does make it harder than easier. But here in Pali, most of the forms are different. So labami with a long a, and then labasi, labati, labama, labata, and labanti. So that's the present active tense. So the tense is the present. The active is voice. So verbs have uh, um, tense number, person number, tense, mood, and voice. Mood is, um, so the present active, that would be the indicative mood. That's just the basic matter-of-fact mood. Uh, another mood is the optative, and that's um, a hypothetical mood. It has to do with wishes. So I wish to take, would that I could take. Um, Sanskrit also used to have a subjunctive mood. So some modern languages still have subjunctives. So French or Italian or something, subjunctives. Um, but that fell out in um, Sanskrit and Pali. So all they have is the optative. So that's the hypothetical mood. Wishes or uh, if-then sentences, conditional sentences, or something like that. Another thing that's kind of like a mood is an imperative. That means a command. So if I say, take this, that would be a command. And you can have first-person commands, second-person commands, third-person commands. Most commands are second-person. You tell someone to do something. But you can also say, let us do something. We should do something. Let us take the book. Let us learn Pali. Or a third-person command, let him learn Pali. Let her learn Pali. Let them learn Pali. So that's what the imperative is. Optative is uh, wishes or hypothetical things. 
And the present active, that's the indicative, that's the regular matter of fact mood. Um, Voice, and underneath it, it says present middle. So we have active, middle, and then there's also a passive. Uh, We have active and passive in English, not so much middle. Uh, Active means the subject does the action (coughs) on the object. Passive means uh, the action is done on the subject. Mistakes were made. Mistakes were made, that's right. So that's a passive construction. And uh, Sanskrit and Pali have this middle form. And that's where the action concerns the one doing it is also the one receiving it. So in English, we do this with reflexive pronouns. So like I dress myself. So that would be a middle thing. But we have to use an extra pronoun for Sanskrit and Pali. They just use the special verb endings. And so they could say that. So he takes it for himself is sort of what this middle means. Um, I don't list the passive because the endings of the passive are the same as the endings of the, uh, the middle. But you just do a different formation of a stem. It's a slightly different stem. There's lots of different stems for any one verb in Sanskrit and Pali. In fact, there's so many, I can't even list them all. Uh, so there's a, there's a stem for uh, the future. So that's a tense, uh, something off in the future as opposed to the present. And then there's different stems for various past tenses. And uh, the passive has its uh, particular stem to it. There's also a conditional, these are secondary formations, conditional form uh, that's based on the future. And then there's causatives, meaning a special form to cause to do something and intensive, a special form where you're doing something really intensely. Uh, Sanskrit also had a desiderative. I can't remember how much this is used in Pali. That means to desire to do something. So Sanskrit would have a special verb form for that. Um, So we have, uh, for the middles, uh, they have their own set of endings. There's the present middle, there's the optative middle, and there's the imperative middle. Good. Questions on verbs so far? Would an imperative middle be you take that for yourself? Uh, yeah, take that for yourself. <laughs> uh-huh. Exactly. Good. Um, aorist is a tense. It's a past tense. And uh, it's one of the hardest things about Pali is this particular aorist tense. Um, But it's nice to see it because in Sanskrit, they used to have it in the old language, the archaic language, but then they got tired of it and they scrapped it. But it came back in Pali, which is a nice thing, at least to a linguist like myself. 
But there's different ways to do it, and I listed four of them. There's probably two or three others ways to do it. And uh, it's not very common still, so it's not something you need to memorize. So first memorize everything else, <laughs> and then, then, memor- then, then do the aorists last. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the aorist, what the word means, it's um, the word for time is aura, so lots of words have the word for watch or clock is aura, O-R-A. And then the A means not. So that's like the alpha privative or the A privative means not time. So this is the timeless tense. So it means something that occurs timelessly or something that occurs just one uh, particular moment in time. So that means timeless. I have heard that Aura is a loan word that went into Greek from Sanskrit. There's not a lot of these, but that's one. So it was picked up along the Silk Road, among the Gandhari people. So we saw that nice Kanishka coin with the letter Buddha in Greek letters. (laughs) Because the people of Afghanistan uh, were using Greek letters for their alphabet instead of some of the other letters. So it got picked up there and then went into Greek or uh, and then went other places. I've read that. I've never been able to quite sort out if it's true or not. Um, at the bottom, you get some verbs to be. And there's two main verbs to be. One is boo to be. So that would be like English be. And um, so that's the third and mostly the fourth but notice it loses its B, so it just goes to homi, hosi, hoti, and homa with an H, so the B drops out, but it used to be there. And the other word for B is us, usti. And those are the forms, so I am, you are, he is, we are, you all are, they are. Notice that they begin all begin with A's, except for the last one, santi, uh, begins with an S, so that loses its A at the beginning. And then there's the optatives. Most of those begin, about half of them begin with S's, and half of them begin with A's. And over in the imperative, that atu for the third singular, that's the imperative of the us verb to be, not the boo word to be. So that's the verb to be. Questions, anything so far? So we're almost through all of polygrammar. Uh, the only thing we have left is participles and other verbal forms. A participle is you start out with as a verb and then make it into an adjective. So an adjective is something that modifies a noun. So you start out with a verb and make it into an adjective so you can use it to modify a noun. And there's different tenses of participles you can do it. So you can do just a present active participle. So like going. So the boy going to the store, the boy riding his bicycle. So in English, we do that ing. 
For Sanskrit, it's A-N-T, stuck on the stem. So, ant, ant. So, for ka to do, karanta, doing. Gach is from gum to go. That's uh, going. Uh, that gachiti word is the same as our English come. So it's it's hard to see that, but uh, but it's the same. Um, so that's the present active participle. The most common participle is actually the past passive participle. So abbreviated PPP. So and that the generally you stick a TA ending on the thing and then make it into an adjective. So kata is done, gata is gone, sutta is heard, vuta is said. So is that term for the Buddha, the tathagata? So that means the thus gone one, ending gata. So he is having gone thusly. Uh, there's also present middle participles, uh, mana, with a long A after the M, M long A N, mana, so karyamana. So being done. Uh, in Greek, this is menos in Greek, like prolego, menon. So that's the same. So the thing spoken beforehand, prolegomenon or prolegomena. And then there's something called a future passive participle, to be done. So it's often the future, it's passive, to be done. Um, and this carries with it an obligation of necessity. So, karaniya, there's a couple different forms for it, taba, t-a-b-b-a, or aniya. So, it is something to be done, it must be done. Veditaba, uh, to be known, it is to be known. From veda, to know. So like the old hymns of the Rig Veda. This is also the word in uh, the Druid word. It means to see, Ved, like video. But then in the past tense, if you have seen something, then it's uh, you know it. Uh, Druids have this word in it. Druids, so these are the priests of the ancient Celtic people, or Celtic people, the Irish and Welsh people. Uh, they are the tree knowers. The drew is tree, and the id, drew id, is wid uh, to know. They are the tree knowers. I used to study a lot of Irish and Welsh. If anyone wants to become a druid, you can automatically become a blue druid if you get a PhD in Celtic studies or Welsh studies in particular. Then you're automatically enrolled as a blue druid. There's different color classes of druids. 
Hmm? No, but you put on the costumes. And then you become, they have poetry contests in uh, Wales still. And then you become one of the judges for the poetry. It's a big thing over there. All right. So now we've made it through participles. Any questions? <laughs> so the last, the last thing on my four pages of Polly is other verbal forms. And these are uh, gerunds and infinitives. So we know infinitives from English. So that's how we identify our verbs. And we do it in English is putting to in front of it. To read, to sing. So that's how we make our infinitives. For Sanskrit and Pali, they had this ending to it, tum or itum. So katum, to make, gantam, to go. So that's infinitives. And lastly is these form called gerunds. Not to be confused with gerundives, and that's another name for the future passive participle, gerundiv. But gerund, this is form tva, tv long a, or tvana or ya. Um, and it's kind of a neat form because it doesn't take any endings. So you just put this ending on it, tva or ya. And the difference in Sanskrit is if the verb has a preverb on it, so we saw preverbs a few pages back, those little prepositions that get glued onto the front of verbs. If it has a preverb, then you make the gerund in ya. If there's no preverb, then you use tva, tv long a. It's kind of like this is a um, instrumental form of a u stem, like the infinitive. So if you make the Instrumental of the infinitive, an infinitive is a noun, a verbal noun. If you make the instrumental of that, you get tva, and that's the gerund. And you kind of translate it like a participle, but you don't have to put any endings on it. So it's just that form. So reading the book, and it can go with anything, although it usually goes with the subject, but it can go with anything in the sentence. So... That in one hour is all of polygram. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so I know that was kind of boring and overwhelming, but now you have all the forms in front of you. So now when you want to read texts, uh, you still need the dictionaries to see what the words mean. But this will tell you how the words are used. Yes? So, if the infinitive for to go is gantum, how do I know to get from that to gachami for I go? That's just different uh, stems of the verb. Do we have anything? No. So every verb has lots of different stems, use lots for different things. And some of them you can go from one to the other, but some of them you can't, and you just have to know it. Um, that's what the dictionary has for all of the verbs. That's why the entries are so long, because they tell you all of the different forms and how they're used.
Yes. <laughs> I noticed that is the Santi important? You just didn't include it in here, but um, yeah, I forgot to do. S- yeah. Yeah, probably. I forgot to do Sunday. Sunday is um, what happens at the ends of words. There are these phonological changes that happen depending on what sound then follows. So these are just the basic endings, but all of these (laughs) can then change (laughs) when you actually use them in a sentence and it's followed by something else. So these are the forms where it's just like followed by nothing. These can all then change, but um, if yeah, yeah. So uh, depending on what then follows in the sentence, um, if I was doing Sanskrit, I could give you a nice chart of all the Sundays. So the Sundays are very regular. Um, for Polly, one of the biggest problems I've had reading Polly is to like sort out the Sunday because it doesn't seem to be all that regular as Sanskrit. <laughs> uh, it's S-A-N-D-H-I. And the S-A-N is sum, together. And the D is to put. And this is a basic uh, root to, to put. In Greek, it's um, tithemi. Uh, so it means to put together. So uh, this is the word used for when you put words together, these phonological changes that take place. Um, yeah, so the root is de or da. Um, different from my favorite word, uh, de, that's the meditation word. Anyone know what this word is in Pali? So in Sanskrit, it's dhyana. And in Pali, it's jhana. J-H-A-N-A. This is my favorite word of any word in the universe. Because this word is a core word in all of these religions. Every religion has this word in it. So in Sanskrit, it's, it's a word for meditation and concentration. The verb is di. Um, the noun meditation is dhyana, D-H-Y-A-N-A. In uh, Zoroastrian uh, religion of the ancient Iranians, it's Dina, and that is also a goddess, and that's this goddess who comes to meet you when you die, and you go off over this bridge, and you're met by this goddess who is the embodiment of all your good works, of all of your works. If you were a good person and they were good works, she'd be a beautiful goddess who will take you off into the afterlife. If you were a bad person and did bad things, she'd be an hideous old hag and throw you off the bridge to get devoured by demons. So that's dhyana. Uh, then this word goes into uh, China as chang. And then it gets taken into Japan 
in the old pronunciation as Zen. This is the Zen word. Chang and Zen doesn't make sense anything in Japanese and Chinese, but it's just a transliteration from Sanskrit. Yeah. Yeah. So it's all this word. And then from the Iranians, it got borrowed into Arabic as the word Deen. In old Persian, it means religion. And then the Arabs, with the rise of uh, uh, Islam, took this word from the Persians. And Muslims don't like to admit that there's any non-Arabic words in the Quran, but there's a lot of them. And this word deen is one of them. Now, there's two words deen in, uh, in Arabic and the Quran. One is the Persian word that means religion, deen, religion. There's another word that's the Semitic word that means judgment. And they're spelled the same and uh, pronounced the same and you can't tell them apart. You can only tell them apart by context. And there's all these places where you can translate it one way as religion and you can translate it another way as judgment. And it makes a big difference. <laughs> like the day of judgment is like the apocalypse at the end of the world. That's the judgment word, and that's the Semitic word. It's not the day of religion, it's the day of judgment. D long I N. Dean. Different from spirits. Yeah, different from the spirits. Dean. Yeah. It's used in lots of names, so. Saladin, the great uh, uh, general. D, there's no U in it, just D I N. There's one passage in the Quran where it says, talking about the unbelievers, and it says, there is a deen for us, the believers, and a deen for them, the unbelievers. And it makes a big difference whether it's religion or judgment. Could it be one of each? Maybe. It's a neat pun, and lots of, uh, lots of Muslims don't even know about this, about the two different deans. Um, but the word doesn't stop there. It goes one more place into Greece. And uh, there it involves a phonological change that takes the D-H-Y into S. So the same word ends up as sema in like semiotics or semiology. Sema, S long E-M-A, means sign. So it's the sign. And uh, uh, it's a very sort of philosophical word and a, a mystical word in many ways. That same um, sound change takes uh, madya, middle, to Greek mesos, mesolithic middle. So the D-H-Y goes to an S. So here we have one word, which is this core fundamental religious word in how many religions? Ancient Greece and then Christianity after that, Islam, uh, Buddhism, 
uh, and Chinese things, and then uh, Hinduism. So that's that's the coolest word I know. <laughs> so I should probably end with that. And <laughs> well, anything to do with signs? Uh, Sema, so the oh, I see. So it's in Greek, and then Greek comes out as Christian things. And what did you say? How did you say you liked it first? Your first, you said it, started out talking about this. Uh, yeah. Yeah. D H I or D H Y A D I. It means to to meditate, to think about something. Jhana. Yeah. So the Pali is jhana. So so keep up with your meditation. It's a good thing to meditate on. <laughs> Going back to is, uh, the origins of Pali, which I understand are kind of murky, but it sounds like it's not directly coming from the Sanskrit. It was sort of this bringing together of a lot of different uh, dialects. But were they all related to Sanskrit? Is that why the dhyana and the jhanas? Because Pali's not coming. You're saying Pali's very close to the Sanskrit, but it didn't come out of the Sanskrit. You're saying, right? Uh, not in those other cultures. So the Iranians. A lot of those words are similar to the Richard. Skandas, Yeah. So for the Persians, it's coming through the roots of their language. So if I look at my language tree, it's coming from the root. Here and uh, also for the Greeks and uh, the others, it's not borrowed. They didn't borrow it from the Hindus from Sanskrit. I guess the thing that I, I, I know there's a lot of similarities, but and you may have, I may have just missed it when you said this. Uh, they don't sound similar, John. Yeah, no, no. That's why I didn't see how they were kind of related. You said yeah, in Scotland, that would be easier. Yeah. But, but, but I think it's the reason people say that the yeah, not exactly that. Anything else? Yeah, I think so. So I've gone through my uh, grammar outline of all the forms. So how would you like to handle this? Quarter to twelve now. Um, you know, I'm, we usually take at least an hour, or I don't know if you want an hour and fifteen minutes, or if we just make up one, or if you want to make up quarter to one. What What do you think? One sounds good. Mm-hmm. <coughs> so reading Polly with you, we actually we have got a bunch of texts, and we'll be reading Polly this afternoon. <laughs>